Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, we have a guest on today who has won many, many broadcasting awards. Yes, very esteemed guest. We have another trailblazer in the world of female sports. She's a former professional tennis player, uh, eventually reaching number 33 in the world and playing in multiple major tournaments before knee injuries forced her into an early retirement. Uh, without giving too much more away, she's been a correspondent for HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gubble since 1997. She's worked as an on-air analyst, broadcaster, and reporter for NBC Sports, most well known for her coverage of several Olympic events. Uh, and her experience makes her an important historical figure, I think, uh, when we reflect on the emergence of women in sports and the strides they've made in the past few decades. Really, really excited to have her on. Uh, boatload of personality. This is going to be a lot of fun. Miss Mary Carrillo. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, pleasure to be here, Joe and Nick. And I got to tell you, when I'm elderly, clearly, and I've been around a long time. So when people talk about all the networks I <laughs> <laughs> I've worked for it. It just makes it sound like I can't hold a job, you know? <laughs> no, I no longer find it flattering <laughs> in well, my dotage. That's that's the industry now where, you know, you got to bounce around. Network broadcast rights, they play a lot into this. But we're excited to have you here, a 2018 inductee into the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame. And you received two Peabody Awards, which to me is one of the highest television honors one for your work with the Billie Jean King documentary for HBO and uh, also for co-writing with Frank Gifford, the HBO documentary, Dare to Compete, The Struggle for a Woman in Sport. So tremendous work there. And I guess we'll just start with those. When, when you, you know, get to the point where you're getting all these awards, if you kind of look back and say, wow, I'm so glad of what I accomplished, uh, or do you kind of get like a little nervous or do you kind of say, oh, well, you know what? I accomplished this much, but there's still so much more I want to do. Well, no, Nick, the great thing about the Peabody Awards is they tell you in advance that you've won. <laughs> so you get to go to lunch, like relaxed, you know, <laughs> and, awesome. and you get to have, have a cocktail. That is my favorite award because <laughs> you kind of know what's, what's happening. And that is, it's a prestigious thing. And any, any big award I've won has come out of HBO Sports. I mean, it's a, I started there in 1996 covering Wimbledon. Um, for the first time. And it was at the behest, Billie Jean King told the man in charge at the time, uh, you know, you, you got to get her on. Billie had been working with Arthur Ashe for years and Martina Navratilova, a, a bunch of really uh, terrific, uh, Frank DeFord, who I ended up writing that documentary with, um, and Ross Greenberg, Billie Jean kept saying, you, you got to get her on. And Billy and Martina and me, we were the first ever all-female uh, announcing team in a, in a tennis booth. So that was kind of cool. But I, I've, I, HBO has been very good to me, and I'm very proud to be uh, a long-standing correspondent for Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. I really like that show. 
Yeah, and of course, you, uh, you won a sports Emmy as well for real sports for your work with the Hoyt family, which is an amazing piece. Now, something that we learned when doing some research on you, let us know oh, if this no. is true or false. This, this isn't going to be good, is it? <laughs> we were surprised, happily surprised to see that you might be a very distant cousin of sports radio host legend Mike Francesa. Is that true? That is the story. And I did not know that until the first time I met Mike. And he said, our grandmothers were sisters. <laughs> I, said, what? I didn't know that, you know. <laughs> so, I, and it turns out he was right. So, yeah. That's, that's pretty wild because I think he's told the story that he got his start by like driving around tennis players uh, for the, he was working for the US Open. So, I guess uh, tennis was in the family genes dating back centuries, centuries ago. <laughs> I don't know about the centuries, but uh, yeah, I've been around tennis a, a hell of a long time. And obviously, if you guys did any research, you knew, you know that I grew up a couple of blocks away from John McEnroe, who I still, I, I still, we're, we're in the NBC booth together calling the French Open even now. We've worked across a, a bunch of networks together. So yeah, a lot of I, I have to credit him, I think, for my tennis history, because when you're 10 years old and you're watching an eight-year-old do the things that John could do, you know, that, that kind of stays with you. And, and when he broke through at age 18 at Wimbledon as a qualifier, got himself all the way to the semis, I was the only one there who'd ever heard of this kid, you know? So the British press were coming to me and asking me about, and, and I mean, his, the way he played stylistically and his incredibly soft hands. And, and I'm just saying to them, okay, yes, yeah, he's impressive, but you should have, you should, he was doing all that stuff about two feet ago. So that was really impressive. <laughs> and John always played like that. So obviously in 1977, I guess it was a dream come true for the two of you to win the mixed doubles together at the French Open. And during that tournament, and I guess, you know, going back to John as a kid, was he always as explosive and uh, sometimes, you know, letting the referees know what's up? Yeah, interestingly, Nick and Joe, I, I've been asked that, and my memory of it is that John didn't do that at all. First of all, he was almost always either one or two in the country in his age group. And you got to remember that back in the 70s, uh, when we were playing junior tennis, there were no, we didn't have chair umpires. You know, right. we didn't have, they, they would, you'd sign up for the tournament and then you go up to the front desk and they'd hand you a can of balls, you know? So there was no one to bark at. <laughs> there, was, there was no, and John didn't, it, there was no reason for him to complain. There was no one to complain to. There was no one in the stand. He wasn't telling people to sit down and shut up. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't telling a lines person, you know, they were blind. There were no lines people. There were no fans. So that kind of all happened in his debut in 1977 at Wimbledon when people really reacted to him. And I think he was as surprised as anybody that it got such a big reaction, you know, that he would kick his racket around and question calls and all that stuff. So at the top, I alluded to you finished, um, well, you performed well in several tournaments, uh, but you never really reached a, a, a high mark in your career. You finished. I, think, I wasn't that good, Joe. I'm the first to agree with you. Oh, it, was the, it was the knee injuries that forced the retirement. Right. Don't tell you so short. <laughs> I was I was riding on rims from uh, from the time I was in high school. Uh, so I knew that my time was very short. I was lucky. I, I would never have been able to play professional tennis 
with my level of skill now in the, in the, you know, in, in the 2000s. But back in the 70s, you know, I, had, I was a lefty. I had a little serve and volley game. I kind of I got away with it for a couple of years. And it would happen to be a great time to be an American tennis player in the 70s because that was the time of Billie Jean King and Jimmy Connors and McEnroe and Arthur Ashe and Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. I mean, it was a great, that little window I had, I still look back on it and, and wonder if American tennis will ever be as good as it was back then. Yes, and it was a big deal. I mean, what's that? It was, no, it was I'm great, so, right? I was saying it's an exceptional time period. Yeah. My dad used to love tennis when he was younger. You know, unfortunately he's uh, not as, as athletic as he once was, but he was a really, really huge fan of John McEnroe and he, uh, he had the opportunity to, to meet him a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, John was, and the thing is there are certain players, I mean, I've been at this about 40 years now. There are players over the years who just spike the ratings. They walk out on the court and the ratings bounce. And I would include in that John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Andre Agassi, even at a time when Pete Sampras was the world's number one, people walk on the court and the ratings stayed pretty flat. Andre, boom, spiked them. You know, there are just some players that do that for you. Serena Williams. Uh, we would go, I, and I've covered a lot. I've obviously been around for her whole career, but we would cover her doubles matches on Tennis Channel. We would leave a pretty decent singles match because Venus and Serena were playing a doubles match. I mean, that's how important she has been uh, to the tennis world and to and to selfishly our ratings. Yeah, yeah, I think I think tennis has become very personality driven. Yeah, uh, it's the same. You see it in in golf as well, where just because someone's the best doesn't necessarily mean that that's who this is going to be marketed as the star. And you see the same thing in Major League Baseball as well with Mike Trout. He's not like the flashiest guy. Everyone knows he's the greatest, but things aren't marketed around him. And, you know, you have the Williams sister come, come in and they're just incredible talents. You've never seen two sisters come in before. And they really change the way that uh, tennis matches are broadcasted um, from beginning to end. And no doubt about it. And you've been, you know, working on broadcasting in tennis since – 1980 when you joined USA Network you shortly after the next year to join PBS and MSG how did those opportunities come about for you so early on uh in your you know post-retirement career there from playing well 1980 was the last time I, I played a match I lost very quickly first round of Wimbledon um you know I and I had too many flat tires to keep trying to bump up with my knees but Months earlier at the year-end championships for the women, I did pickup commentary and a guy named Mark Stolberger, who was working for USA Network, happened to hear me. And he called me a couple of weeks after Wimbledon 1980 and said, hey, USA Network's going to start covering women's tennis. You know, do you want to, are you around? Are you available? I was madly available. I, mean, <laughs> I needed another knee surgery, but I, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll talk. I've been talking for, you know, weeks. So um, I just started at USA doing women's tennis, which wasn't a real career. There, were, there, were, there wasn't a lot of women's tennis. It was only when I started covering men's tennis that I actually got to pay down my mortgage. And then I started covering other sports as well. And then it became something I could, you know, I could, I could do on a pretty regular basis. But that's how it started. It was 
I was just lucky that this guy happened to hear me at Madison Square Garden late at night because they couldn't, genuinely, um, they couldn't find anybody. There were no more. All the other celebrities had gone, all the other tenants. I was the only one hanging around <laughs> for this match between Yvonne Gulligan and Tracy Austin. And I got to tell you, I had a couple of pops, you know, uh, and I was nice and loose. This guy interviewed me before that match and said, you know, why are you hanging around? So, oh, it's going to be a great match. And I started describing the difference between Gulligan's style and Tracy Austin's style. And he decided, he called his, he talked to his producer and said, why don't we, why don't we let her call this match with us? I didn't even have a headset, guys. Wow. They just put one of those like Larry King microphones in front of me. So I didn't, I mean, I, I was nice and loose and relaxed and I, I knew my onions, you know, so I just started talking. And it was very lucky that a producer heard me that night. It's great, right place, right time. Exactly. It just, it just works out that way. Now you mentioned, obviously Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena. And you know, you've done time there. I've done time there. Yes. So <laughs> absolutely. I have former, former intern there, which is awesome. Uh, but you don't really see too many big time. Uh, sometimes you see the celebrity matches, but you don't see too much tennis there anymore. And I always wondered oh. why, uh, what, what do you think about, you know, the arena as, as a whole, obviously it's the world's most famous, but how do you, do you see any, any scenario where in the coming years here, we start to see some more events there, not just tennis, but more things outside of the traditional uh, basketball, hockey, and wrestling? Well, I mean, I, uh, you're right. The year-end championships for the men and the women used to be held at the Garden. And it, it, reporters and TV people loved it because you wanted, and it was around Christmas time, so it was kind of great. It was beautiful. But what happened, obviously, to rent out Madison Square Garden, is a tricky thing when they've got other stuff going on. And other countries wanted the year-end championships. So then it became like, it's the men's championships for the last eight years has been in London. And they, and now next year, it's gonna be in Italy. And the women's championships have been in Asia because the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association is trying to grow that market. Um, and it got canceled this year. A lot of stuff got canceled in, in my sport in 2020. But you're right. I mean, the garden, I, I'm from Douglas and Queens. And I used to take the Long Island Railroad from my, from Doug, D-Town right into Penn Station. And Madison Square Garden was right up ahead of it. And I used to go to the Knicks games. I used to go to, I watched hockey. I, the first ever concert I went to was Stevie Wonder when I was 15 years old. I mean, Madison Square Garden to me is just one of the great, there are some, there are some arenas that are truly special, like in an epic way, because you can kind of feel the history of the joint when you walk in, you know? And that's certainly true with the Rangers and the Knicks and all this uh, boxing, so many amazing, you know, boxing titles have been decided there as well. So I don't see that it's coming back, frankly. I, I don't, again, so many countries want that year in championship and they throw a lot of dough right. to make it happen. It's all about the money, but it is the mecca of entertainment. That's for that's for sure. But with options, uh, soon we'll see out in Belmont, the Islanders new stadium, and of course the Barclays Center, Prudential Center, all in the metropolitan area. It's cheaper for companies to rent them out exactly. as opposed to Madison Square Garden. But and I haven't been to the Barclays Center yet. How is it there? It's it's wow. not it's not good for hockey, which is why they're leaving. <laughs> the Islanders are leaving, but. It's uh, it's pretty nice. A great facility. It's a great, great facility. facility for concerts and basketball games. Yeah. Uh, not really a building suit for hockey. Got it. Yes. All right. That's too bad. <laughs> so, 
So you're, uh, you're doing your broadcasting, then you join ESPN, you have two stints with them. You also do U.S. Open coverage for CBS for many years, up till 2014. Mm-hmm. You're doing HBO, as you mentioned before, Turner, as, you know, right steals switch and change. Then in May 2003, you join NBC Sports, and you really haven't looked back. You join there, you're doing tennis, of course. When you s- signed up for that gig, did you know you'd be doing Olympics or do you going in there just thinking I'm doing tennis and how did that opportunity come about? No, I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. But I'm, I'm one of those people who raises my hand. Yeah, I'll do. I'm yeah, I'm around. Um, a man at the in charge of NBC Sports at the time, Dick Ebersol, gave me every opportunity. And the only reason I got to call tennis it was uh, my first French Open, and Chris Everett had been there, had, had, had been their announcer, and she was pregnant. So, yes. Yeah. Chrissy, Chrissy's having a baby, and, <laughs> and, <I'm, laughs> and, and, and what happened was that, you know, I just continued to have opportunities like that. I, 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 was, uh, I started covering, I had actually done three Olympics um, for CBS, because uh, they used to have the rights to it. And when NBC got the rights and I got a chance to, to cover them, this Tokyo 2020 would have been my 15th Olympics. Uh, and I'm hoping that it happens in 2021. And NBC seems to think it will happen. So we'll see. But no, I had no idea, no idea at all that something like that could come my way. But what, what was nice was that I think the first Olympic assignment I got was for skiing for NBC. Uh, and all I was, was the, was the, I was the reporter at the bottom of the slopes, but I went into this total ski mode. And the, the great thing for me guys is I, I traveled the world, you know, covering tennis, playing tennis, but I had never been to a French Alps to cover an event <laughs> or, uh, you know, Cortina d'Ampezzo. All of a sudden I'm in these gorgeous cities that tennis would never have taken me to. Um, so that became a real blessing. And then I got to tell stories, you know, I, that's the kind of, I do a lot of features, um, for the Olympics and that, then you get to understand the history and the culture of the cities you're in. And it's a great planet. I mean, I honestly, I, I say yes to a lot of things just cause I want to, I want to see what's going on around this world. Yeah. Every night, you know, tuning in obviously for years with Bob Costas and now Mike Tirico. Always look, always look forward to your stories. So I'm just wondering. Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com. Typically, how, how far in advance are you going out to these places to film these things? And also, uh, were, you, were plans already made for you to go in 2020 to start filming and then everything had to be halted? I'd already shot um, three features for 2020. We shoot a, a year out because we want the seasons, to, the season to be the same. Right. You know, so like for Sochi, I was, I spent 10 days in Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then by the way, we go to Sochi and it's bombing there. There were, there were people swimming in the black sea. It was yes. a bizarre, bizarre Olympics. Not one of my favorites. Um, and that was the famous Bob Costas pink eye situation, which also got very humorous and Bob was good spirited about it all. But yeah, we usually shoot a year out. So I had already done for the, this summer's games, 
I had been there. We scheduled this one around cherry blossom time. Um, and so that's why we decided to go shoot because we wanted to show people how gorgeous Japan is during cherry blossom season, which is short. And then we scheduled, I also learned how to become a sumo wrestler, <laughs> which I'm proficient at now. And we did a, a salute to samurai swords. So we went way out into the country where this generations, hundreds of years of samurai sword makers are still at their craft. So yeah, it's usually a year out. And I don't really, I think one of them did run on one of the NBC platforms uh, this summer. Um, but yeah, I, it's hard to know what's gonna happen uh, in 2021. I mean, the idea of 15,000 people coming into a country that is still spiking with COVID. It's interesting guys, because the Australian Open Tennis Championships is coming up in Japan. I mean, in, in Melbourne, uh, it's, it's usually held in like midway through January. It's been pushed back to February and it would mean a thousand people are coming in from other countries to play that event in terms of players and coaches, physios, trainers, all that stuff. And the reason Australia has still not officially committed to holding the event is not because COVID is a problem there. It's because COVID isn't a problem there. <laughs> They've been able to fight it back. So the government of Australia and especially the state of Victoria, which is where Melbourne, where the tournament is held, they've got a lot of hesitations, understandably, and reservations about letting all these foreigners come in. Crazy, yeah, huh? It's gonna be interesting moving forward to see how these international uh, events and the, yeah. I guess the actions these countries take uh, in order to acclimate the, the rest of the world and, and be able to hold these events safely. But Joe, don't you think hockey did a pretty good job this season? I mean, I thought they I think they did a tremendous job. I yeah. think under the circumstances at the time, in order for them to have put together a coherent plan in place so quickly, yeah. uh, using the two hub cities that they did in Canada, uh, obviously everybody was essentially airlifted from their homes. A lot of people, not only just teams, coaches, uh, you know, players, uh, but broadcasters, production crews, uh, they spent quite a few, a few months away from their families. Yeah. Uh, probably we weren't at the height of this at that time. Uh, we were coming off of the height going into the summer, uh, but I think the NHL did an outstanding job. Nick and I have had uh, Liam McHugh on recently. We I watched it. On recently. I did my but, homework. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. You guys have a very nice podcast going on. Appreciate and and Liam's, Liam's Appreciate a good guy. It. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we love we love all. I'm not we love surprised. The, You're award-winning journalist. That's we it. love the NBC Sports family, and you know we had Pierre on, Pierre McGuire, your colleague, and so I just love the Olympics, seeing these amazing broadcasters doing sports that they typically yeah. don't do. Uh, Pierre does a great job of water polo. So did Doc Emmerich. Kenny Albert is like the most versatile guy in the in the business. He really is. Sport, yeah. Track, you know, you got Al Trotwig doing doing. Uh, he does gymnastics. It's just just an amazing team there. And I just love that the powers that be over there give you all the faith in the world to say, Hey, you may not know this sport, but go ahead. And we have full faith in you to go cover that, that sport. Well, guys, if you ever get the chance to work uh, at an Olympics for NBC, you'll see, I mean, I'm only fluent in one sport. I'm the first one to admit it, but we, the week before the Olympic Games, we, are, we all go into, we, we spend a, a day long, day long, various speakers coming up 
explaining to us the right way to do an interview. And here's some examples of a great moment, you know, on the field or at the bottom of a hill, the wrong way, you know, you're, you're praying as you're sitting there. Oh God, don't use me as one of the don'ts, please. Like, <laughs> they, I mean, they teach you how to, not to second guess, but to sort of pre-guess to let people know, you know, where do you take your eyes? Where do you, you know, where do you want people to look? What do you need people to know? I mean, that's one of the, the tricks I feel when I go from, jump from sport to sport, I have these amazing analysts. I've had it in figure skating and, and skiing and everything else. They, they acquire this great technique of not telling you everything they know, just telling you everything you need to know to enjoy that moment, you know, and not bury you under stats or, you know, like let people enjoy it, you know? I mean, that's what I like about my sport. It's a game of pauses. So uh, more often than not, a huge thing happens and all you, you just sit back and let your director cut cameras, you know? Yeah, that's the last few cool. minutes of conversation are, 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 have led us to this point, right? Uh, we're finally gonna get the opportunity to ask you about your epic badminton rant because <laughs> it is quite possibly one of the most outrageous one of the most random, mo one of the most off-the-cuff sports rants, I think, that exists out there. Uh, nobody – I remember when it happened, and I know for a fact that a lot of people are probably, be like, believing that that was not okay and that that was just something that you completely uh, went off the rails with on your own. Uh, it's one of the most – like I said, one of the greatest brands in, in history. How just like it your cousin, out? Mike Francesa. Just <laughs> to go. Um, I, I have to tell you, that was not in a teleprompter, as you can imagine. And everything I described was absolutely true. I was about to throw, uh, I, was, I was the host of the daytime show in Athens. And, and, and you know, we, I, was, I had to throw to, you know, all kinds of different events. And one of them was badminton. And I had told my producer, I want to show the difference between, you know, a Kmart badminton racket and shuttlecock and what the pros use. And so it was supposed to just go there. And then I would say, coming up, here comes badminton. And I kind of, there was a little bit of time where I took time. I'm not sure which anymore, but it devolved into me explaining my career as a mother, you know, having kids play badminton in your, in your driveway. And, and what happens. And yes, every, it seems every summer Olympics, it's not really a badminton rant. It's, it's a motherhood rant. <laughs> if you've ever had children, you know what it's like. And my, my house happened to, for some reason, it, it attracted a lot of small children um, when I had them myself. And yeah, Great that was you a had fun. The props I have to tell you too. what happened though. Joe, I, when it was over, I throw to, I say, coming up badminton. And now we're in a commercial <laughs> and my, my poor long suffering producer came out of his boot and came up to the desk. And he just like looked at me and said, what the hell is that? <laughs> 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 um, 
they gave me a lot of freedom back in the day. I'm not sure you could take up that kind of time anymore on network television. Live TV, folks. Live TV. That was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, my wife and I, we love playing badminton. We're already good. We just play in her parents' driveway when we go. It's to awesome. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And now we got uh, they have the oversized ones as well, which is kind yeah. of cheating, but all, all fun, all fun, no matter what. And who knows? Maybe that'll be an Olympic sport one day as well. We keep getting all these new sports and. I'm lucky. I'm really happy we're going to see baseball and softball back in yes. 2021, which will be awesome. I think the, the new logo, the 2021 games is just marketing genius where they add the, the one after the zero. <laughs> so I think that's incredible. Shout out to my wife who works in marketing for NBC. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> she never not to do with that, but uh, I did want to give her a shout out there. But you know, another famous uh, thing that, from your Olympic coverage is your famous comment about men's double luge. And you said like a, like a bar, like a bar bet gone wrong. Uh, it was voted like the, the line of the year. Did you, when you, when you said that, did you think that it would, you know, go, if it was these days viral, but you know, just travel <laughs> around the way it did then. Right. Have you guys seen what that looks like when two no. guys are on top of each other, sliding down a mountain feet first? I mean, Clearly, a lot of winter sports were invented in, in bars. That's all I could figure. It's freezing cold. They're all hanging around. You know, they've blown the suds off a lot of beer. And they say, hey, I have, I've got a great idea. Let's see who's the fastest down the mountain. Let's take this hors d'oeuvre tray and slide down it and see who wins. I mean, that's, to me, I, I, that was in Salt Lake. And as it happened, I had done I had done a little bit of coverage of bobsled and luge. Um, they had sent me out just to get used to the sport and to the announcers, so I knew like what on earth I might be doing. And but I didn't think it was that big a gig, honestly, because most of those you know most of those sports um, are won by Germans and Austrians and you know Alpine you know countries. And as it turned out, eight medals, eight American medals, came off of that mountain. So I was just lucky I got to, and so, and so and, you know, they spoke English and the guys were happy to be on the air. And <laughs> I ended up having a great couple of weeks in Salt Lake. I, I would cover double luge again in a heartbeat. One of the like most crazy things that's a sport in the Olympics in the winter that I can't believe was ever a sport is <laughs> skiers who shoot guns. I think that is the most incredible sport because I don't know how, you, how do you trade for that? You go to the gun range, you're skiing. I don't know where they were originated from, but you can't keep your eye off it when it's on TV. It's absolutely true. And, and it's, uh, you know, let's face it, the Olympics started out as war games, you know, without death back in ancient, ancient Greece. Wars around the world were suspended for months. So a lot of, a lot of war games, boxing, wrestling, you know, sprint, the marathon obviously came out of ancient Greece as well. And then winter sports happened. And as I said, I got to assume that a lot of these sports, <laughs> what, you know, it's a freezing cold night, you know, you're not ready to go home to the missus <laughs> and you just sort of invent stuff. But that is, that's a, that's a classic, that's a classic war game, honestly, skiing as hard as you can, slowing down your breathing, you know, aiming for your targets. It's really, I, the more you watch it, there's something hypnotic about it. It's true. Because then you realize how much stress, how much effort they've put into getting to the target. And then they've got to take everything down and squeeze the trigger. Yeah. 
there's some there's some amazing they're among my my for me the most impressive athletes are those guys um, yeah. we had a lot of laughs here in a very short amount of time uh, but i want to ask one more serious thing before we we start to let you go uh you're an inspiration i think to a lot of women out there uh, not just female athletes but a lot of women who are looking to to break into this industry it, it's it was a hard industry to break into now not so much anymore uh but like I said, you are an inspiration to a lot of women out there. Uh, you've met probably a, a tremendous amount of great people in your life. Obviously, obviously you mentioned Dick Ebersole before. Uh, he's a name that always comes up on this podcast. Yep. Who do you think, uh, we'll say outside of Mr. Ebersole, uh, who do you think is either one person or a few people who have been uh, the biggest inspirations in, in your life and have helped you reach the point uh, where you are now, which I think is a, a very, very successful uh, award-winning career. Well, thank you for that, uh, Joe. And I, I would put Ross Greenberg in that conversation as well. The man who for so many years ran HBO Sports. He at Wimbledon, at, at, it was my first ever Wimbledon uh, for HBO. And at the end of it, Ross, Ross said to me, you know, we've got this new show called Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. Do you want to try do you want to, you know, do you want to maybe do a story or two? And of course my hand goes, yeah, sure. And they gave me Charles Barkley. That was my first ever profile. I mean, even I couldn't screw that up. I mean, the guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a joy. Uh, to, uh, this is when he was still playing for the Sixers. Um, so uh, the, the Phoenix Suns, I should say. Um, and then it just kept happening. Like, like the, the, you mentioned the, Dare to Compete, The History of Women in Sports. Again, I credit Billie Jean King. She and Donna DeVarona, a couple of women were the consultants for the History of Women in Sports documentary that HBO was doing. And once again, Billie said, hey, Mary's got a lot of ideas. Why don't we bring her in? So I was originally brought into that room as a consultant. And then of course, I start spitballing ideas. You know who we have to, and what about the first woman to, you know, and I start coming up with, and again, Ross Greenberg said, well, do you want to do some of these interviews? Absolutely. <laughs> I say yes a lot, guys. Yeah. I, by the end of it, by the end of all of that, I had been so consumed by it and I so enjoyed it. And I was learning about long form storytelling. By the end of it, it turned out that Frank DeFord did the first half of the history of women in sports. He wrote the first half and I wrote the second half. And after that, I was hooked on documentaries. And you guys know how much, how, there's so much content that's necessary on so many platforms now. I mean, documentaries are springing up everywhere. Um, but that was my, that was my first ever uh, work in a documentary. And it, believe me, it wasn't because of me that the thing won a Peabody, but I was, what a team I was on. Uh, what an experience that was. And then you just kind of feel like, yeah, let's keep doing this. <laughs> This is a good thing. And the Billie Jean King thing was an absolute, I mean, that was, a, a, it was something uh, Margaret Grossi, the producer and I, we were very passionate about it for a long time and that got to happen. So I've been, I've been blessed to say the, the very least. And we have been blessed to have you on and we appreciate that you said yes to us. I absolutely, I'm, I think you guys, uh, I, I love what you're doing. Um, Keep it going. If you ever, if you ever need someone to, to talk again, you know, you got my number. I'll really, say really appreciate that. Obviously you do your homework very, very well. Uh, 
we always give the our guests the last words, right? And uh, you've kind of given us a lot of really great stuff here towards the end. But if, you, if there's anything else you would like to share with our listeners, uh, if there's anything you would like to promote, uh, the floor is all yours. Once again, we thank you for having uh, for coming on our show. You know, this was a real lot of fun, and and we didn't anticipate this many laughs. Uh, <laughs> Some some chest pain. Mary, I gotta say, your Mike Francesca your Mike Francesca impersonation was probably the best I've ever heard. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, no, all I would say is um social distance, wear your masks. Um, I'm working on a story right now for real sports about something called long haulers. What happens after you've contracted COVID and then what happens if you're an athlete, if you're anyone, but I'm concentrating on athletes and and how for some athletes, it's very hard to get back to where you were. It affects your heart, it affects your lungs. It can make, you know, um, so that's all I'm saying. You know, I I, I looked on on a list of where I land on, you know, when I get to get the COVID vaccine, it's a long time from now. (laughs) So in the meantime, I'm I'm gonna take every precaution and I certainly hope you guys too do as well absolutely let's hope everybody stays safe and let's hope we see the olympic games in 2021 it'll be a very busy uh back-to-back years for you because you'll be right on to winter olympics and getting those amazing features done really really appreciate it mary thank you so much so for our very special guest mary carillo and for my co-host joe calabrese this has been you know all right Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com.